Welcome to another episode of Axe of Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Happy FFF, which stands for Final Fantasy Friday. Though, of course, this episode's coming out on Monday. You're breaking the timeline, Nadia. Oh no, I've done it again. Everything's <laughs> going back to zero. I'm sorry. You're finally playing Final Fantasy VII Remake, though. It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I actually, since I'm on the East Coast, like, both uh, Mike and I, like, we just kind of waited until 12 a.m. and, uh, you know, hit the start button as soon as the, the opportunity presented itself. And I played about, like, three hours and had to go to bed, finally. How are you feeling? I'm really enjoying it. Um, I got out of the first Mako reactor, and I Mako. am... Mako. Mako, Mako, Mako. And I am in the slums and just really impressed with how well-built they are. Hmm. Yeah, I think it was at this point that I was going, wow, I'm like actually really impressed with what they've done. This is really neat. So I am curious to see what your thoughts are, especially since you can take it more at your own pace rather than kind of having to marathon it like I did. Yeah, obviously, like I said, like when I said, okay, I'm done for now and I could turn it off, that was definitely a privilege that I had that you did not have. I I, I think I said this uh, maybe with Jake that... This is kind of a game that isn't amazing when you're marathoning it because you start to really feel the padding. Yeah, I, I can totally see where you're coming from there. I haven't reached any sort of padding yet, but uh, I'm sure it's there. Like, it, It's funny to play the game from the perspective of, of someone who has played vanilla Final Fantasy so much and seeing how a certain scene, like for example, the soldiers chasing after Cloud after the Mako reactor blows up, like, that's a very quick, like, three-second scene in the original game where he just, you know, gets cornered and he jumps on the train. Whereas in the remake, that's a whole thing. you got to, like, fight your way to the train station and escape. So um, I don't know if that would count as padding, but I can expect the whole game has a lot of that kind of scene where, okay, here was a three-second movie in the original game. Now it's a whole sequence that might take you half an hour. I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I think it's pretty fascinating, but... Um, I guess if you're not really expecting that, if you're not really into that kind of thing, um, it might rub you the wrong way. I thought that area wasn't particularly well built, actually. It felt really confined. because So this is an area that's kind of like Midgar and everything. Yeah. This is very early in the game. Yeah. And in the original game, you have escaped the Mako reactor. You run into Aerith. Uh, you buy the flower. There's some like kind of haunting, mournful music going on. I think it's like Anxious Heart or something. Yeah, it is. And then you get surrounded by soldiers. You escape and you jump onto the train. Yes. That's it. You get out. You spend a whole lot of time like watching all of the impact of mm-hmm. the bombing of the Mako reactor. Everybody's being horrified. It's all very over the top and everything. And you see Aerith, like, freaking out because some weird ghosts are chasing her or something. Yeah, she's, like, everyone's just kind of watching her. And she's just, like, kind of dancing by herself in the in the center going, leave me alone, leave me alone. And it's a weird intro. <laughs> and Aerith. then you buy, you buy a flower from her. And then you spend a whole bunch of time fighting Shinra soldiers. And then you finally escape. And it loses a little bit in the translation for me. Um, I actually really like the fact that you can see the impact of what you have done and you get like little mm. snippets of conversation as you go on. Like there's one little kid who's like, I want to go back and get my toys. And his mom's like, you can't. And he said, well, when can I? And just mother had to have nothing to say to him. 
And I think that section was extremely effective. I just, I didn't like that they padded. I was like, well, we got to include a combat encounter here. Yeah, okay, I see where you're coming from. Although I did really like chasing Sephiroth. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> I, that's a whole different discussion. And it's actually kind of a discussion that we'll be having because I have two special guests, Steve Bowling from Game Explain and Alex Donaldson from RPG Site and VG247. And we are going to have a very spoilery discussion about the end of the game, which has already been the subject of much conversation. And yes, Sephiroth is part of it. So I think you can definitely look forward to that. If you don't want to hear that spoiler conversation, you want to keep it banked for later, well, we got also got a mailbag for you this week, and we're going to be talking about a lot of fun topics as usual. So... I think we got a little bit of something for everybody, Nadia. We do. I like uh, I like having an emergency mailbag like this. <laughs> I don't want to call it an emergency mailbag. It's been a minute <laughs> since we've had one. That's true. I like doing mailbags. This is usually about the time that we should be doing one. We should also get around to doing a console RPG quest soon, maybe next week. Yeah, we should. Uh, I guess Final Fantasy has derailed everything as it tends to do. Yeah, Final Fantasy VII Remake, you can escape its gravity. It's always going to come and get you. Yes, it's like Supernova. It just has its own gravity. Just ask, just ask Square Enix, which hasn't been able to escape its gravity in 23 years. Yeah, hopefully this will like loosen things up a little bit for them. Oh my God, we're almost to the 25th anniversary of Final Fantasy VII. Ugh. Yep, believe it or not. Ridiculous. All right, if you want to support this podcast, can I suggest you leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast? We always enjoy seeing positive ratings, and it helps the visibility of the podcast. Also, follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. My DMs are open. If you have any feedback or discussions, you want us to talk about something, send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. That's K-A-T-H dot B-A-I-L-E-Y. And I will save up your questions for a potential mailbag like we are doing today. Also, we have a newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday. It rounds up all of the RPG headlines of the week and also includes some scattered thoughts from Nadia. Uh, Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Uh, It was a little bit unusual. I was talking a bit about how I am finally making my own little RPG setup in our bedroom because I'm tired of my husband hogging the TV every day, which really cuts into my RPG time if I play on the PlayStation 4. And as we all know, the Switch has a lot of great RPGs, but the PS4 has a lot of its own exclusives. So I am taking a kind of a smallish but decent monitor slash TV, putting it in the bedroom with my PS4, and it kind of reminds me of some of the best days I've ever had in my life where I finally got my own TV, put it in my room, and had like just all the time in the world to play RPGs without having to share a television with my family. And I got to thinking... Some people like playing games in the open and like kind of like letting their friends observe everything they're doing. I find that very, very awkward. I like to play privately, like in my own little bubble, and I am glad I'll be doing that again, even though like it's not like my husband has any sort of objections or snes or like you know snar- uh, snarky remarks about what I play. It is certainly not just I just like to play alone. My PS4 is usually in the back room where I kind of I have my old TV and I can kind of play. Uh, at my leisure. I agree with you. I don't particularly like playing RPGs in the main living room with everybody because I don't know. I think RPGs can be kind of a personal experience and also they don't make great viewing in a lot of ways. They really don't. When I was a kid, like (laughs) when I was a kid, my, like, of course I grew up with two brothers and I'd make fun of everything I play, like not because to be me, but just to like be snarky about it. 
And like, I just remember my, one of my most vivid memories is finishing uh, Street Fighter Two with Guile and seeing the ending, where like Guile reunites with his his daughter and his wife. And my brother's like, "This is so stupid. Why doesn't he just flash kick his wife?" And it was just so <laughs> dumb. And I'm like, "This is a nice ending, and you're ruining it." So that sort of thing I had a lot of in my childhood. So I'm really glad that I can just play by myself. We had Fire Emblem Three Houses on our TV quite a bit for a while because my housemate was playing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a... Uh... See, but you all, you all kind of enjoy that, that... You're all united in that kind of weebness. Like, you don't have to sit there and explain why this person on the screen has, like, vivid green hair or, or anything like that. Mostly, though, we've been having Animal Crossing on the TV a lot lately. That's a good watching game, actually. I kind of like to watch my husband play that sometimes. I did shift FF7 Remake into the living room at a certain point because I didn't want to feel cooped up in the back room so much. I wanted a more kind of chill, relaxed experience, which had the net effect of driving everybody out of the living room because they didn't want to <laughs> watch me play. <laughs> Were they all listening to the voice acting? Did you use the English voice acting or the Japanese? I used the English voice acting this time, and I think that it was kind of the right call because I, I think the English voice acting's pretty strong, actually. It's very good, and I'm really impressed with how the AI has synced the English to the lips. Um, you don't get that too often in RPGs. I think Dragon Quest Eleven does it, but it's not common. Yeah, Barrett's a little over the top at first mm-hmm. but i think that they cool him down a little bit and he hit, strikes just the right note of cornball but at the same time kind of fun and very likable yeah and it's like i i have to have wedge as badger like i just can't change <sighs> that voice that's great yes wedge's badger is perfect it, it's it, it is like the perfect game casting Okay, if you want to get our newsletter in your inbox every single Wednesday, you can find the subscription information on starting screen and in our show notes. In the meantime, we're going to continue on to the spoiler cast discussion of Final Fantasy VII Remake's ending with Alex and Steve. And then after that, we're going to continue on to the mailbag. So either don't go away or get ready to fast forward. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I am here for the spoiler segment of Final Fantasy VII Remake. If you do not want to know how the ending of Final Fantasy VII Remake goes, turn back now because we are getting into it. If you want to skip straight to the mailbag, check the show description for the timestamp in which you can skip to. Joining me with our two other people who have finished Final Fantasy VII Remake. One of them is Steve Bowling from Game Explain. Hi, Steve. Hey there. Thanks for having me. And joining me, and for the first time on the show, which is remarkable because Alex and I get along really well in real life whenever we meet up, and he is a Square and Final Fantasy aficionado within the same <laughs> company, even. It's Alex Donaldson. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a while coming, definitely. Yeah, we've been talking about this forever, and I can't think of a more appropriate occasion than what is bound to be the most controversial ending to a Final <laughs> Fantasy ever. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's sure something, right? I mean, I think as soon as I finished, I, I think I messaged you, Cat, right, and I said, "Are you playing it?" And you were a little bit behind me, and I was just like, "Message me again when you finished it." <laughs> 
<laughs> and then I uh, I finished it and I was like, what the F was that ending? What the heck? I think a lot of people are having very different responses to it. Like just, you know, talking about on VG247, Kirk was playing it as well. And I finished it and I was someone who didn't particularly want a Final Fantasy remake in the first place. I would have much rather this week to have been playing 16. Um, and so I was okay with the whole concept because I was just like, hey, I'd rather they do something new. We've got that game. We've got that story. Uh, but Kirk, who was really looking forward to it, was super deflated the day after he finished it. Like, he, he was just super down in the dumps and he sort of came around on it. I don't know if you have cats. I know you felt similarly. Um, but initially, he was super bummed. I was mad. <laughs> um, wow. Almost to the point of, like, being a little crazed on Friday. Like, I was just like, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> I think uh, I mentioned on this episode that I recorded a whole segment with Nadia, which was me basically being practically catatonic and mumbling about, like, I can't believe <laughs> they did that. And then I actually recorded a whole new segment with Jake Green, our guides, senior guides writer, because I was just like, I, I, this segment is nonsensical and I don't even, uh, this is what a blue screen of death looks like in human form. <laughs> so I think I'm going to have a whole different conversation now. Uh, but we'll get into that. Steve, what was your immediate knee-jerk reaction? Uh, I was kind of wondering what the hell was going on when I was playing it. Um, and, and I mean, I guess they needed to close it out with some big set piece, you know, because this is a, a I don't want to say a standalone game because it isn't, but it's, it's supposed to be the ending to, you know, a, a $60 full retail size game. Um, so I kind of expected them to go big on spectacle towards the end i didn't expect it to be what it was um and uh, what i mentioned in my review was if they were retelling the whole story there's no way that this would exist if it was no. just one complete remake there's no way this would have happened um but since it is you know we're going to be waiting god knows how long for the next installment uh they probably decided they need to just have something huge to be the ending i'm just not sure that they hit it I mean, they. I, I mean, it's not surprising that they finished with Sephiroth as the final boss battle, and I gotta say, pretty cool boss battle. It was. It's, it was good. They did a good job. Great remix of One Winged Angel. It's that thing of, they go for the beats, right? That 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 you would have expected would have been in in, I don't know, the third game, the fourth game, however many they're gonna do, um, in the respect that it's like. After the final boss battle, you sort of have that cinematic sequence where Cloud and Sephiroth are sort of in space and they have a little fight just on an asteroid or something. And That's from the end the, of the original game. Yeah, the, uh, that's exactly what I was getting at. The camera cuts in the introduction to that fight are straight up what happens in the live stream at the end of the original game. And it's sort of like them going, right, we're probably not going to do this in subsequent games because of what they're doing with the story and because of different paths they're going down. So we're going to do it here. So you've had it. You know what I mean? That's, that's my <laughs> read on that is that they wanted to get that iconic moment done because God knows where it goes now. Right. All right. What's your pet theory on what exactly happened with all of this? Because we, we had a discussion separately, Alex, uh, mm -hmm. you have your own, preferred theory and i'm wondering has that changed at all 
it's developing all the time, and I, I've, I've legitimately so I finished the game twice now, once on normal, once on hard, and I recorded the whole of my first playthrough. So I've rewatched all the key uh, scenes multiple times to sort of try and pass it. And I, I said to you, obviously, the, the big thing is uh, the scene with Zach at the end, and the big marker in that scene to me is that there's sort of a piece of trash that flies past like a chip packet with uh, a stamp the military dog on it and you see stamp right throughout the game it's graffiti that you see and stamp actually almost has a role to play in the story and that avalanches sympathize have been graffitiing stamp and when you're in this scene with zach it's a it's the same stamp but it's a different breed of dog so it's sort of like the one that you see all game is like a beagle or something like, you know, or whatever the Final Fantasy VII universe equivalent of a beagle is. And the one you see in the Zack sequence is a completely different breed of dog. And obviously that could just be, here's a different version of the same character. But I took that to sort of be the signifier that when they walked through the portal at the end, that the characters passed into an alternate universe that is going to be different in subtle ways, such as Stamp being a different breed of dog, and that means, from a from a real perspective for Square Enix and the development team behind the game, they can now change anything they want, and the explanation is, well, it's a different universe. They make it very clear, they're telegraphing, that things are going to be different the second that you kill Destiny. Like, Aerith talks about it constantly, she makes it extremely clear, we kill Destiny, things are different now. Okay. <clears throat> or the Arbiter of Destiny, whatever. You kill the Arbiter of Destiny. Destiny is now dead, which, by the way, not a great fight. Very Kingdom Heartsy. And you, once Destiny is dead, uh, that sends ripples throughout <laughs> multiple time throughout the timeline. And I guess what we were looking at was supposed to be Zack's final stand. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he, it, it's clear that he was supposed to die in that final stand, but he expresses surprise. Oh. I'm alive, how surprising and interesting, that's different. And so now things are different. And what we're seeing, uh, when the chips packet flies past, that's just your signifier that the timeline has now changed. Um, and apparently killing Destiny resulted in a different mascot. <laughs> yeah, it totally um, could be that too, yeah, yeah. And when we see the uh the shot the visual shot of Aerith and cloud and zach all crossing together first of all that's your hint that these three have a meaningful connection uh because we don't know if you were playing this for the first time you don't know who zach is i think like, if you're playing this, this for the first i think if you're playing this for the first time though that entire last hour and a half is incomprehensible <laughs> yes that actually when i was talking to jake that was his first time playing final fantasy 7 remake and he was like who's that guy what's going on i have no idea yeah so but the, the point is, is that you're supposed to be like who's this guy what's going on like why does Aerith have like this really pensive look when she's thinking about him like she's clearly aware that there's been a change in the timeline or something so yeah when it's crossing over it's supposed to represent that they have a meaningful connection and also that they're now that is part of the timeline. The timeline has changed, and we will be seeing Zach at some point 
later in the game or in, in the second game. Like he may even be a playable character. I wouldn't be shocked. And that might be how they deal with the, that might be how they resolve a lot of the cloud uh, mental hangups and that kind of thing is that he literally gets to in- talk to Zach. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. That's my kind of pet theory is that he actually hangs out with Zach. And also I think Nomura just likes Zach. Like, I think he's a big Zack fan, (laughs) based on the fact that they did an entire game in Crisis Core about Zack. And I think he was just like, eh, screw it, I want to put him in the game. I did sort of laugh to myself, though, at at the the concept of this ending, undoing the ending of Crisis Core, because it sort of felt like uh, Tetsuya Nomura undoing another piece of uh, Tabata's work. Um, Just, (laughs) you know, there's 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 a thread there. But, like... I, yeah, it could just be that the timeline has changed, but even then, I think if you want my guess on where this goes long term, I think the ultimate end of these games is that you've got Zach alive and Biggs alive and Aerith alive and possibly other minor players. Maybe Bugenhagen doesn't die, characters like that. Um, and ultimately, they realize that they're sort of creating a crappy future. And they have to sacrifice themselves to put things, quote-unquote, right. I, I feel like that is definitely going to be the ultimate end of these games. It's going to oh. be, be they're going to reset it back at the very end. Wow. God, I hate this. Because uh, that's Steve. so melodramatic, right? Steve, what's your, what's your take? Uh, so mine is remarkably close to yours, Kat. Um, you know, throughout the game, you see uh, these whispers kind of pushing pushing people into place so that the story of the original Final Fantasy VII happens the way it's supposed to, even though the characters kind of have different ideas at points. Yeah, the literal like where... ghosts of the original game. Yeah, yeah. You see, yeah. you see, like, for instance, uh, Cloud and Aerith get dragged into the back where they have to go through that sequence to uh, to escape uh, Reno, right? Um, and so I, at, a, that, so... at that point, I was thinking, like, the characters actively don't want to do what we're making them do. <laughs> um and then, yeah, you reach the end and, and you know, I kind of, I mean, it seems like to me they were kind of hitting you over the head with the idea at that point. Like, yeah, you're fighting destiny. You're going to, you know, so you can forge your own path or, or whatever. Um, and during that fight, uh, Cloud sees a flash of Aerith's death. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he kind of gets glimpses of, of what is to come during the fight. You know, he has one of his many, many headaches. <laughs> um so I, I I do agree that once they've once they've defeated you know the arbiter of destiny and, and I also wasn't a fan of that fight either I I felt no. it was just kind of repetitive and and boring. It was repetitive um, and not especially satisfying because you're fighting these kind of shadow monsters that were kind of formless and a little boring to look at, and you're just trying to kind of get through a relatively easy fight while I don't know Cloud and or Barrett and Red Thirteen are you know, blowing off limbs of this giant shadow monster. Very Kingdom Heartsy. A few a yeah. few notes on that. Did you guys notice that the the trio of, of whispers that you fight at the end had the move sets of Cloud, Tifa and Barrett? Oh, oh I yeah. did not, no. Absolutely. So one of them is a sword user, one of them is a fist user, and one of them has a gun. And that's <laughs> really interesting because like it's you know, that gets you starting to wonder. It's like are you fighting, I don't know, weird future iterations of themselves trying to set the timeline right right like there's questions like that that come out of this 
what were all of the different flash forwards? Because you see them, you see a flash forward to Eris' death. You see Red and his cubs, so you see the very end of the game, and that's the most interesting one because it makes clear that they all see it, and Barrett says, what the hell was that? Tifa says, what was that? And Red says, that's something to the effect of, that's a glimpse of the future if we fail here today. Yes, I thought that was interesting because, I mean, so I just rewatched Advent Children, which <sighs> in many respects just kind of goes, just kind of shrugs off that ending and goes, eh, uh, yeah, so they just left Midgar, whatever. Um, and it almost seems to imply that humanity died in the original uh, telling of the story. I do want to say, at the very end of the original game, though, after that shot and after it fades to black, you do hear the sound of children playing. Mm-hmm. So, or laughing, there was always yeah. that. Yeah, there was always that idea that something I want to because you've brought up Advent Children. Something I want to bring up is one thing that I've seen a lot of fans talking about, and I'm, this is not my theory. You know, I don't want to steal credit for this if it turns out to be the case. It's just something I read. Um, was the suggestion that maybe the Sephiroth in this game is actually the Sephiroth from that continuity from after Advent Children. And there's a few reasons they suggest that, but but the main reason is is that Sephiroth has a lot of, when you're in that final fight, does a lot of the same things as Advent Children and has some of the abilities and visual cues in Advent Children that he does not have in Final Fantasy VII at all um, or doesn't get until the end. So it's like he has the black wing, right? And that is something he doesn't have in Final Fantasy VII apart from when he's in like the mega what is it safer Sephiroth or whatever form yeah um and that's really interesting to me like and that seems like a Nomura thing to do right this idea of like here's the villain he lost and now he comes back in time tries to change things and creates a second timeline as a result sort of like Star Trek 2009 right you know what you know what game they also did that in Valkyrie Profile Samaria where hmm. Lazard Valeth actually goes back in time if i recall correctly and basically tries to change up the timeline and it's kind of dumb and i don't like it well it's sort of like um magus's role in in chrono cross as well right like mm-hmm. that was that this thing one of the things that brought to mind for me was was his role in that whatever the case it's pretty clear that sephiroth has read the script and he's <laughs> like oh i lose in this script i don't want to lose well, do, do you guys think that he is in control of the ghosts? Or do you think that the ghosts are just there as a consequence of him trying to change things? Uh, yeah, the ghosts are there as a consequence of him trying to change things. And yeah. they're trying, they're pushing back at the events that have been set in motion because they're not right. And everybody has their part to play, apparently. And they're stopping Sephiroth from doing what he wants to do. And so he's... I guess, trying to create a situation in which Cloud and everybody will take care of the destiny problem for him. So here's the question, though. When Cloud lands the final blow on him, not in the weird space sequence, but in the actual battle, he explodes into a bunch of those ghosts? This is what I don't understand. So, okay. I think we, the fact that we're sitting here trying to overthink it is just a product of the usual uh, Nomura-esque complication for the sake of complication. Yeah. One of the reasons that I really don't like the way that they've taken this particular ending is that it just doesn't feel very in keeping with the particular source material. Uh, the original Final Fantasy VII was 
Yeah, like there are a lot of elements like the life stream and the planet and multiple Sephiroth, like Sephiroth is dead, and but there's also a clone of Sephiroth walking the earth and all of that stuff and a lot of psychological drama, I suppose. And at its core, it was a kind of deep look at the traditional hero and breaking down that that kind of archetype and it went in some cool directions and had a lot of interesting things to say uh like its villains were interesting uh its environmental themes were interesting and i just don't think that the whole timeline every changing your destiny etc i just don't think that's a fit for final fantasy 7 what do you guys think I think it's a good way to explain why they're making the changes they're making. Um, but I, you're right in that I don't think it fits the narrative theme of the original game very well at all. Uh, you know, the, it just, um, it, it kind of felt like it was out of left field. Um, and, and it does feel like almost more of a Kingdom Heartsy kind of thing, like fighting your destiny and, and overcoming odds to make something happen that's magical. <laughs> I, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't fit well with the with the overall themes of the original, but I'm curious to see what liberties they're going to take now that this has happened. You know, more so than it uh, resembling Kingdom Hearts, it, it, the first thing it made me think of was Final Fantasy Thirteen because that's a game written by, where the, the overarching story is written by the same guy, and obviously the scenario director of this game, um, Toriyama, obviously directed that game and that's a game that is all about here is your fate here is your destiny as ordained by the gods and it's all about the characters going no screw that we're not going that way and that is exactly what happens at the end of this game now it makes sense to me that so yeah this is the thing right like i get that the original themes of final fantasy 7 the story the section of the story that they were telling in this game they the, the themes don't really develop in that section of the story. They don't have the the time. They don't, and even in this expanded version, they don't have the necessary ground covered. It's like you need that Cosmo Canyon moment to sort of crystallize the themes of life and death and stuff like that. And so this game needed a different thread. Where I think they can get this right is if if by defeating the Whispers and by defeating Fate at the end of the game. That means now they've changed the past and that means they can do whatever they want for the next couple of games and they can tell a different version of this story while touching on some of the same bases, all the iconic stuff that people want to see, right? But they've got a get-out-of-jail-free card to change whatever they want. But these ghosts, we don't see them again now because they've been defeated. I think that's a smart way to approach this. But like I said, I'm not someone who cared about having a remake of Final Fantasy VII as it stood anyway. So I get why someone like yourself, Cat, and like I said, like Kirk on VG twenty four seven would be bummed out by this idea now that they might not see what they want to see and that it's besmirched the original story. But I take the tack of more well, the original story is still there, and even if this is a complete trash fire going forwards, which it very well may be, because the people involved have had a really rocky track record over the last t- ten years or so, um, it at least will be an interesting <laughs> trash fire. The thing that I find interesting at you were comparing it to Final Fantasy Thirteen. I think there's also a whiff of the original Final Fantasy in there as well, where mm, yeah, you have a villain going today. back in time to change things. Yeah, somebody said this to me today, and I had not tweaked that at all. So it's not like it's completely not in keeping with Final Fantasy in general. 
it, it is Final Fantasy-esque in many ways. But at the same time, I think the reason that Final Fantasy VII resonated so deeply was that while it had many classic Final Fantasy themes, it also was very much its own thing. And I don't know, like shoehorning the, in these elements don't doesn't quite sit right with me. Um, as for the notion of turning it into more of a rebuild of Evangelion kind of situation, um, so for people who aren't familiar with rebuild, uh, it's positioned as a remake, but they explicitly go, we're changing a lot. And they really, really change a lot. Like, that's what you're signing up for. And I guess my theory going in was like, okay, the original Final Fantasy VII, it's very old at this point. In some respects, it does not hold up extremely well. And it's a love story, and there's a lot of room to tell a expanded version of the remake. And I think that uh, people are going, well, if you want to... If you want the original story, just play the original game. I don't. I don't really think that's a. That's. I think that's a false choice, honestly, because <laughs> I think that there are plenty of remakes, especially in the anime space, that take the source material and generally hew to the original themes and the original telling of the story and the original characters and the in the aesthetic, but find new and interesting ways to spin it and to twist it. Um, I keep going back to Yamato twenty one ninety nine, which. And the original was extremely jingoistic and very like rah-rah, Imperial Japan, we did nothing wrong. And Yamato 2199, they're like, well, we started the war. And like, there's a lot more soul searching going on and that kind of thing. I am still telling broadly the same story, but they have a very different outlook on the original themes. And I sort of feel like there was a lot of space to do that. And we kind of, we kind of get that with Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse when you go topside and you're in the... Shinra neighborhood, which, by the way, was probably one of my favorite sections of the entire game because it's a brand new look at Midgar. It's like going, wow, okay, wow, this is a side of Midgar I never got to see in the original game. And maybe more of that and less of the timeline, like what the heck is going on? Did Sephiroth read the script? <laughs> Question mark. See, the, the, the rebuild of Eva comparison, I think it makes sense, but I think the nature of of Final Fantasy and its and, and especially Seven and its popularity in the West and all that sort of stuff. Um, I mentioned the Star Trek reboot movies earlier, and that is where I see it going. I see it being more like you know, okay, we're going to do the next one, and they they knew they had to do Khan right, and he had to shout Khan because that's the thing that happens. For the record, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness is the worst Star Trek movie ever made. I just have to add that. Shadow of a doubt. But but, it, but without a shadow of a doubt, but it's that thing of like it. it so of course they're going to go to the gold saucer, and of course um, they're going to hit all those all all the big notes that you would imagine. You know, I imagine they will definitely do Barrett and Red in the sailor suits and all that sort of silly stuff. But I think the story will go off in wildly different directions as a result of that. And I think it's for the same reason as well. It's for the reason of with the Star Trek reboot ended up the way it was because. They wanted to return to the things you knew. They wanted to return to Kirk and Spock. But they didn't want to upend all the lore and disrespect all the stuff that had come in that franchise as a result of that. And this is the same thing. They don't want to upend Advent Children and Dirge and all that stuff. So they've made a way, they've made an excuse to get into another timeline. But as far as where's something like Rebuild of Eva really took on 
it took on what fans said, right? And and was like, right, well, people said, why didn't he do this in the original? So in this, he's going to do it. I don't think they're going to go down that path. I think it will be more, here's the things you know, but also we wanted to do them differently. More in the vein of, hopefully that means the ga- the second game isn't like Star Trek Into Darkness, though, because goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> do you think this means that Aerith is going to survive this time? Because it really seems to be hinting at that. I don't think she'll die in the place that she dies in the original game. I think she will probably die eventually, but I think there will be a big old fake out in that sequence oh. when they get to it. That's interesting. Oh, he'll Sephiroth will come down, and it looks like it's the scene's going to happen, and then Cloud blocks it. It totally. It will be that thing because the only it's one of the most shocking moments in video game history, and because of that, it is not shocking anymore, and therefore. The only thing they can do to sort of make it shocking again is not do it. But at the same time, uh, there's a whole generation that has not played Final Fantasy VII. Um, One of my writers is, he was born in 1996 for heaven's sake. He was one year old when Final Fantasy VII came out. He was going, please do not spoil things for me because I don't know what comes. I, I don't know what happens. And that was kind of the theory of the original you know, of this remake was that so many people are going in there fresh, you know, not knowing what's going on. And I think, you know, I think the the answer to those people will always be the original is still there. And I think as soon as we start to get those post-release interviews where they talk about this stuff, I can guarantee that's going to be the talking point that comes out of Katase's mouth. It's going to mm-hmm. be, well, the original's still there. Uh, we wanted to do something different, which... I get. But like I say, my prediction is absolutely firm, which is that I bet that all these characters that are alive that weren't alive before, and there will probably be more going forward into new games, and maybe we'll have some people who weren't supposed to die who do. Like, I could definitely see them killing some minor people. Um, You know, maybe killing Reno or Rude or someone like that. Um, I think come the end of this series, however many games it is, I bet the final sort of thing is realizing that whatever they have changed isn't working and the people that survived have to die and everything has to the timeline has to be corrected i've watched too many episodes of doctor who to not think this is going to happen <laughs> steve what are your thoughts um i'm i'm thinking along similar lines i feel like uh, why would you flash forward to Aerith's death if you're going to just play it out the same way it happened before um and and like uh, we were discussing just a second ago. I mean, I, I feel like a lot has changed because so many of us loved and have played Final Fantasy VII that there that I, I feel like this is an earnest attempt on Square's part to to actually surprise us, even though this is a remake. Um, and you know, we're already in what appears to be an alternate timeline. Things are definitely changed. Uh, characters that were supposed to die haven't, and. Yeah, if I'm sitting there as somebody who played Final Fantasy VII, you know, back in 1997, good lord, um, and Aerith, we we get to that scene, even even though there's a part of me that expects for her not to die, but if we get to that moment in the game, there's going to be a part of me that's just waiting for, you know, her her, her to get pierced through with that sword, and if it doesn't happen, that will be a big surprise that'll be a big moment and it will drive it'll be incredibly divisive (laughs) it'll drive people crazy but um i do agree that that 
I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're going to see a lot of changes, but, um, you know, I do like this theory that at some point they're going to realize that they need to make the timeline right and that they're going to go have to have to change things somehow. Um, it, but, you know, I'm not 100% on, on what's going to happen, but I do firmly believe that Aerith isn't going to die where she did in the story. So I'm now going to say something nice about this, uh, all these changes. So apart from the fact that it's really bold and kind of interesting, I think that Square correctly realized that if they went down the path of doing kind of a straight remake, that each subsequent part was going to kind of lose momentum as they went because people the novelty would fade and people would drop off and then by the time and sales would diminish mm -hmm. and by changing things up appreciably they are going to be fueling all sorts of speculation about the, what's going to happen next all the changes and as such anticipation will be through the roof for final fantasy 7 remake 2 and that could be a good thing ultimately because final fantasy 7 remake has been getting good reviews uh, I think everybody's going to be playing it. I'm sure sales are probably going to be better than they ever were for 15 and Final Fantasy 13. The the crossover aspect is very strong with this one, and that could result in a bigger budget for Final Fantasy 7 Remake 2 and enable things that they might not have otherwise been able to do. I agree with Alex when he says that probably it's going to, in some ways, hew to a lot of what came before, and you're going to see a lot of classic sequences, i.e. <laughs> buried in the sailor suit and whatnot, um, but also a lot of differences. So <laughs> in a way, it's kind of a masterstroke for Square, gotta say. Yeah, and I think they got burned, right? Um, I think I think they were... Everyone that I've ever spoken to about that stuff seem, um, seemed to have been taken at least a little bit by surprise by how significant the drop was between each of the 13 games. Um, I think it was pretty much like a 50% drop off from game to game, which meant that by the time you get to Lightning Returns, it only sold like a quarter of what F13 did, probably less. Um, and I think they were quite shocked at that. And obviously to do a project like this with the development resources required and stuff, it's got to be, it, they've got to try and keep the numbers up, right? Um and yeah, it, it's it's it lines up. It helps them certainly. As long as this could easily backfire, though, because there's already a lot of anger, right? There's already a lot of stress from fans. And if when they start showing the second game, people don't like what they see, that could go seriously south because then people will just start screaming, "See, you should have done it just the same as it was." But I, I think. It's, it's that's a really really challenging task for them and i wish them the best of luck <laughs> i mean this just remaking it was a immensely challenging task because to do it in a way that was like really nice um and made people happy and everything and playing it very safe could have gone over very well but ultimately maybe the ceiling would have been a little more limited and by going very bold and very risky they risk pissing people off but at the same time maybe the ceiling is much higher the return the potential return on investment is much higher um and in in era where everybody plays it so damn safe and everybody goes for the crowd pleasing moments and it's so fan servicey i kind of applaud square for really going for it i think my main thing is that i don't necessarily trust that they're going to be able to stick the landing i'm really i'm really hoping they can stick the landing this is the litmus test though right is game 2 mm -hmm. because 
really, they don't really, really go for it in this game until the last 90 minutes. Like, the, this game is relatively straight conversion of the original with some slightly rubbish open-worldy bits and some some filler episodes, so to speak, that feel like your filler episodes of a TV show, like the Jesse sequence. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value, but it, means it did feel like a filler sequence. It was like, we're going to take you away from the main players of the story because we don't have any more story for them and we're going to take you somewhere else and you'll learn about some other stuff, but it's not really... You could lose it from the story with no consequence. So it's only in the last 90 minutes that this game goes, right, we're going crazy now and we're going to turn the world, we're going to literally turn the world inside out. Um, The question is now, because what's interesting to me is they sort of turn the world inside out, but then the last scene is still the same as the original game. The last scene is still them up on that hill. It's still them resolving to leave Midgar almost in exactly the same wordage that they use in the original game. Um, which but thirteen's means... like you have my axe. Yeah, which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which means that if you, if if they wanted to, they could, as we say in Britain, they could bottle this and decide to just continue down a more, uh, a more faithful path. But they've opened it up so they don't have to do that, and I genuinely think that's probably them hedging their bets to see how people react to the last couple of hours and then decide accordingly. <laughs> no, that was my thing, was that I'm going, well, they could just decide to on it if people really react poorly to it. But at the same time, development's already started, and I'm sure that they've already sketched out the scenario, so I'm kind of wondering how much they would be able to change even if people were pissed. Oh, no, I was just going to say, that that's pretty much where I'm at, too. I feel like they have to be underway with... with the next part or the next installment and and i wonder if they're too far along to where despite negative reactions and there are some i mean <laughs> i i i've gotten a my fair share of hate for liking the game on my review <laughs> uh so i i imagine that that there's probably not a ton they can do for the next installment but i do agree that they that it does seem like they left themselves in a position where they could go either way based on how the game ends Final Fantasy VII Remake, The Unknown Journey. That's going to be part two, right? <laughs> yeah, to- I, I totally think that. Yeah, I, I totally think that's the... Which, again, that's a very Star Trek sounding subtitle, right? Um, for, for a sequel. But uh, I, I guess that they can go either way now, but I hope they have the stones to, to carry on. And I think if anyone... If there's any developer who'd just be like, screw it, I'm doing it my way, it is it is Nomura anyway. Um I think I think the thing is this game got delayed which suggests that this game was probably coming in quite hot and so given that and also given that the world has ground to a halt for the last month I wonder actually how much real material work has actually been done on part 2 at this stage because given that they they were they were coming in so hot that they had to delay the game presumably not many of the team are able to really move on you know obviously you get a shadow team and obviously they're sketching out concept art for characters locations i'm sure that way before this game shipped combat designers had versions of sid and yuffie up and running and stuff like that but um and certainly red considering that in the data mine there was like equipment for him 
in this game. Uh, and obviously you can't access his equipment menu at all. So, but there is like there's actual in the demo data mine there was text strings for what are his weapons again? Like hair piece, like hair combs or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Um, it was totally text strings related to that stuff. So and you, you see, have to think, and you see him using moves from the original Final Fantasy VII. Uh, yeah, which at various is cool. points. Yeah, I do think they. I know people weren't happy with it, but I do think they made the right decision. When you look at the scope of the game and you look at where he's introduced, making him playable would have felt a bit wasteful at that stage, I think. And he was so good, too. <laughs> like, I love their depiction <laughs> of Red 13 in this game. The new voice is great because I never really was a fan of the um, Advent Children and Dirge voice. Final thoughts on Final Fantasy VII Remakes. Crazy ending. I think I've already said that I hated it initially. I'm still a tiny I'm still a little bit at odds with the decision to change things up so substantially. I don't actually mind that they went in this direction, but I am not a huge fan of the execution. I don't like the the timeline stuff. I don't like the destiny changing your fate kind of stuff. I think that's a little dumb. But at the same time, like I also kind of acknowledge that it's a legitimate, valid choice to take with a remake. And I have to admit that it makes me, it's made me interested to see what happens next. I am genuinely intrigued. So I, I think that maybe if they can stick the landing, history will bear them out and they will be like, wow, good job, Square. Like you took this impossible task and you accomplished it in ways that we could never have expected. What do you think, Steve? Um, like you said, I'm really excited to see what happens in the next installment. Um, and where I otherwise really wouldn't have been. If we if this was a beat for beat remake, we would all know what's going to happen. You know, for the rest of the the rest of the installments, however many there are. Um, this this changes things up. I mean, there there are some pretty huge potential implications here. Zach being alive, you know, is obviously massive. Uh, it opens the door to other characters like Aerith not dying. Um, so I'm actually, you know, for we don't know what we're going to see in the next game. And I find that to be really intriguing. I don't necessarily I, I'm with you in that. I don't necessarily think they executed the ending in the greatest way. Uh, you know, I wasn't a fan of the boss fight. Uh, and if you're not a Final Fantasy fan, that ending was nothing short of just baffling. <laughs> like it, it would be very difficult to parse for somebody who doesn't understand the history of the series or, or even of just this particular game. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick with it. I'm excited to see what, what we get in the future and hopefully we're not waiting years upon years for it. But um, I'm, I'm still kind of in the, mi- in the middle ground on this. I, <laughs> it's, it's complicated, right? Um, <laughs> to quote that Final Fantasy 15 trailer. Um, I'm glad that they did this. Um, I think the original game exists. The original game holds up remarkably well. Uh, the original game is fabulous and therefore great go and do something different um, I enjoyed it for what it was I do think the elements of the ending were a bit silly I wasn't an enormous fan of the Sephiroth fight like from a narrative perspective and the the, the Whispers fight was pretty bad from a game perspective um, but I'm here for it and like I said I, I even if it turns out to be a trash fire it would at least be an interesting trash fire whereas if it was just a beat for beat remake now we've experienced the visuals the 
the combat and stuff like that, we know what we would have been getting, whereas now we don't. However, the crux is Nomura's storytelling is often, um, it's an acquired taste. I'm one of those people who finds just my eyes glaze over Kingdom Hearts, you know, and I loved the first two games, but all the stuff that's happened since, my eyes just, you know, my brain just goes somewhere else. Um, and that's the danger. It's like, never mind that the end of this game is confusing, because that might be, they can clear those mysteries up in the first couple of hours of the next game if they so choose. It's more like if this turns out to be a three or a four game series, how complicated and ridiculous does this look by game three or four? And that's where I think the entire Final Fantasy VII Remake project will will live or die. But as far as the first game and laying out a groundwork for what could be possible, I think this is about as successful as you could hope to be. But, the last caveat, <laughs> I just I feel like they really did not make what they did very friendly in the end for newcomers at all. And that's a great shame, because that's the one thing where you wonder, does this ending leave newcomers intrigued, or does it leave them saying, eh, okay, I won't buy the next one. Are you all ready for Final Fantasy VII Re-Final Prologue Remake 3.9? Oh, God. Please, no. This is what I mean. I can't, you know, if this is the path that it goes down, I just can't, I can't live, I can't live that way. Um... (laughs) Yeah, just, just just, don't. But I think, to be honest, I think we'll probably get... I think everyone will get distracted anyway because I think we'll probably learn about 16 before we learn anything about the second part of this game. Um, but we'll see because, you know, you never know, quite know what they're working on. But it seems like probably the 14 guys have probably been working on 16 for a long time now. So, Well, they love to introduce the new Final Fantasy right around the time that a new console gets introduced. Just what they did with Final Fantasy 15 when the PS4, like, I think that was during the PS4 E3 presentation, right? When they announced 15. So I wouldn't be shocked. I, I wouldn't have been shocked if they had planned to announce 16 during E3. Yeah, I think um, I think it's pretty obvious that that's probably going to be Yoshida's group. Um, you only have to look at, like, the difference of names in the credits between... Um, a Realm Reborn and Heavensward and Yeah, Storm it's all but confirmed, right? That I mean, we know Yoshida is working on a new project. I mean, they have said quite publicly, and they've posted some awesome-looking concept art alongside their recruitment like page. But I thought it was um, a different AAA game. Well, all they've said is that they're working on a new AAA game. They haven't said what it is or anything like that. So uh, I would not be surprised if that game is Final Fantasy sixteen, especially when you if you go through the Final Fantasy. 14 credits over the years. Um, you can see names dropping off, and those people aren't leaving Square. They're just going to a different project in the same di- business division, as they call them. So I reckon... And they're, they're big names. They're the sort of people that you would put on a big new Final Fantasy. And we do know already that um, the team that Tabata left behind are apparently doing a new IP. They've been quite public about that. So if anyone's doing 60, and this team is obviously working on 7, so if anyone's doing 16, it's got to be. That's I the guess thing. It might be. Maybe it'll be four years before we see the next part of this, or five. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I guess we'll see. In the meantime, thanks, guys, for coming on and helping me talk through my very complicated feelings about Final Fantasy VII Remake's uh, ending. I'm sure that all of you have very complicated fi- feelings about Final Fantasy VII Remake. So if you want to drop me a line and just vent sadly, uh, my DMs are open. <laughs> uh, the underscore catbot. In the meantime, 
uh, you guys should plug some stuff. Uh, start with you, Steve. Uh, find me anytime on GameExplain, youtube.com slash GameExplain, or find me personally on Twitter, twitter.com slash stevembowling, uh, where I will give you the worst opinions on just about anything. And Alex. Uh, well, as Kat said, uh, you can visit uh, vg247.com. You can find me writing there, and you don't have to feel bad about cheating on US Gamer because it's all the same company. Uh, and I also uh, work on RPG site, uh, at RPG site on Twitter, rpgsite.net, which is doing all sorts of deep dives and nerdy takes on Final Fantasy VII in particular at the minute. So if you're into that sort of thing because you're listening to this, then maybe uh, give that site a look. All right, thanks, guys, and let's move on to the mailbag. Okay, I'm back with Nadia Oxford, and it is time to talk about the mailbag, Nadia, and we are yes. going to pick up with some Final Fantasy VII Remake-related questions. I think that having Remake come out has made everybody else start thinking about what games we want to see remade. I got a couple of questions to that effect from Kevin Cleary. Playing through FF7 Remake has got me thinking about my other two favorite RPGs, do you think there is any chance either a Xenogears or Suikoden 2 remake will ever get made? And we also have uh, somebody else asking, uh, Rob TG, with FF7 getting a remake, what classic game would you like to see remade and to what extent? Nadia, what are your thoughts? Uh, you sound like Morgana when you say that. What are your thoughts? Um, let's see. I guess for uh, Xenogears versus uh, Suikoden 2, I personally... F- I don't think I want a Suikoden 2 remake at all. I think nearly everything about that game is perfect, and the only thing I'd really want to see for it is maybe maybe making it a little more HD-friendly, plus I'd really like to see a new translation. So that's really all I want out of Suikoden 2. Xenogears as a remake would be very interesting. I have not played that game. I hear it is, is of course, flawed as hell. We all know how the third disc just doesn't really do much beyond narrate everything to you. I feel like that would be a good candidate for a remake. Um... Although, with the way that they made Final Fantasy VII Remake story more batshit, I don't even know what they would do with Xenogears. My god, it would ex- it would just be an explosion of nonsense. <laughs> I mean, god knows Xenogears could use the remake. I would just be afraid that they would take like a Trials of Mana type approach, where it's clearly kind of more of a B-tier type yeah, game. And um, I feel like and Xenogears, Xenogears deserves for a lot of people is almost as nostalgic as Final Fantasy VII because... For a while, those were the two games that dominated the RPG landscape, Xenogears and Final Fantasy VII. So if you give people a half-assed Xenogears remake, they might not be happy with it. Yeah, I think the main reason to remake Xenogears at this point is to get that second disc all the way back. But at the same time, I mean, so many of the original principles have moved on, right? I mean... It's kind of a odd question too, right? Because yeah. the original, like Mutsuda, is no longer around anymore, and also Tetsuya Takahashi, he's with Monolith Soft, which is a second-party studio with Nintendo, and that begs the question of like, okay, 
So what umbrella would this fall under? Would this fall under Square? Yeah, that is definitely a question. Fall under Nintendo? Um, what if would be Square happening? and Nintendo teamed up to make this happen, that would certainly be like not exactly out of the realm of possibility, but it'd be like, wow, that's really cool that that's happening. I'm really down for this. But I feel like the Xenoblade slash Xenogears series has really moved on and made its own little niche. And it's a really good one. I really like Xenoblade Chronicles. I like this, the where it is and what it does. And as you said, you said something earlier about how a lot of the themes in Xenogears have kind of like, not really expired, but they, they've been overdone. Like we've all, we've all killed God a million times already. Uh, I'm not saying like, oh, we can't have games like that anymore, but it's just, I don't know if, if Xenogears, like just vivid sort of imagery would elicit anything other than, than like intense laughter these days. Like, could you imagine Choo Choo Crucified in 4K HD? That would just be... That would be like, mwah. that would be incredible. <laughs> I just sort of feel like I don't like the settings of Xeno, the new Xenoblade games. Uh, and the, this is the power of the Monado. It's like, eh. <laughs> That's so great, though. That's so amazing. Yeah. I will be playing Xenoblade Chronicles, uh, the remaster, next month and probably enjoying it because I actually like the battle system of that game a lot. But mm-hmm. uh, the setting does not really get me. Whereas I, I think Xenogears is from a very specific time and place in anime, like the post-Evangelion period. Yeah. Where they yeah. were just so a... at, they were so wanted to lean into that as much as possible. And can you imagine a modern game with like a two-hour extended cutscene of all of the different ways uh, that they're trying to reunite the different parts of Faye's personality and that kind of thing? It's just, uh... Yeah, it just would not fly in this day and age. Yeah, but... I don't know. So I I wouldn't mind seeing it, but I think the results would be kind of disappointing, actually. I wouldn't mind an HD remaster with uh, new content. Yes. Maybe if Square could somehow partner with Nintendo and make it a, a, a Nintendo Switch exclusive, perhaps? Yeah, I would absolutely be down for that. Um, clean it up a bit, give it a, a nicer coat of paint, give it some nice graphics, clean up the translation a bit, because I thought I heard the translation wasn't so great mm-hmm. again. So, um, yeah, I would I'd be curious about it. I don't know what you would do for the second disc, but if you could kind of fix that up, I'm sure a lot of people would be appreciative. Fill in the blanks. That sounds like a big project, and a lot of people don't remember <laughs> No Gears. As for Zuikunin 2, well, R.I.P. Dream on. Yeah, um, I keep hearing rumors about Silent Hill being bought by Sony and giving oh, back to that's, Kojima. That's and complete that just BS. All that's seems, I know, it's, it's like the most... Epic I love the publication the world, that if... broke this news, quote unquote, and then actually managed to also break the news that it wasn't true and got like double the clicks. I was just like, <laughs> well done. I'm just like slow clapping well done. at that one. Good job, you. I have an, I- I have an idea to boost our traffic. Yeah. It was just complete horseshit as a rumor. Front and everybody knew it, but everybody it ran with it because they so it was such like wish listing, such wish fulfillment. It was such a pipe dream, uh, God. And if if I could see Suikoden treated the same way, like oh, it goes to Nintendo, it goes to anyone other than Konami, of course I'd be like, oh my God, like Suikoden is back. But uh, Suikoden is definitely not back for now. Suikoden is quite cold and dead. And Konami recently posted, I can't remember if it's on their Twitter or their Facebook, but like a header with all these like mascots from all these different games they had over the years. And I'm like, oh, look at Konami being like, look at all these mascots I don't give a shit about anymore. Can I just say that actually I don't really want 
uh, any classic RPGs to be remade. I don't want Final Fantasy VI remake. I don't want Final Fantasy V remake. Because I'm just afraid that Square is going to Trials of Mana in it. And it looks okay, I guess. It's fine. But I don't want a kind of a cheap-looking 3D uh, remake of a masterful 2D sprite-based game. No, I definitely... If I, if that happened, I would definitely want... A, I still think the Octopath Traveler style is really nice. I'd still love to see that for Final Fantasy VI. That's what I would be afraid of with Valkyrie Profile if they decided to remake it. would just be like, oh, yeah, but the it's such a budget game now. And I... I don't want to play it this way. It loses something. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like, well, it'll be my first time getting to play it. And I know maybe the graphics aren't as nice as they were on the PlayStation, but heck, at least I finally get to experience the this game. The optimal solution is to give it an HD remaster of the original and include the ability to skip cutscenes. <laughs> you got to have that skipping the cutscenes thing. Uh, okay, continuing on. So Anthony Agnello, who's a friend of the show, he's uh, guest hosted this show in the past. He has a couple yeah. times. He did a big old, I don't even know what he was, I, I didn't read the ex- actual article. It's on AV Club. It's a big uh, ranking or guide or something to all of the Final Fantasy games. Yeah. And he yeah. started a big old Twitter fight because he's a total troll about what is the what constitutes a core Final Fantasy game. I just want to lay down my perspective on this for everybody to hear, okay? A core Final Fantasy Mm. game is the numbered games. That's it. The sequels do not count. I'm not getting into the Revenant Wings or After Years or Before Crisis or any of that stuff. It's the core games. None of the direct-to-video things. And I don't count the MMOs (laughs) in there. Like, I barely count the MMOs in there. I definitely agree that a lot of the spinoffs are what they are. They're spinoffs. I'm not saying they're bad. They just they are what they are, and I'm fine with them being there. But I do think that the uh, core Final Fantasies do include the MMOs, particularly 14. So that's uh, that's my argument. I, I guess the service games just have such a different energy to them, though. I don't know. Like. I think of it as, okay, I don't know if you've ever played the Dissidia games, but those are almost like a showcase of all the core Final Fantasies. And, of course, the Final Fantasy, like, 11 characters were there, and I imagine if they did another one, 14 would be in there as well. So, I don't know, it just seems like whenever Square Enix pays tribute to their to Final Fantasy, they definitely have 14 in there, and 11 to a lesser extent. Fair enough. They did it with Theater Rhythm, too, which means Mystic Quest is a, it's a core Final Fantasy. No! Well, it's not numbered. <laughs> it's just Mystic Quest. It's lettered. Unexpected Davis says, Fave quests that are resolved without violence? I'm replaying Legend of Mana right now, and I'm finding the game that is at its best when you're talking to just people. What do you think, Nadia? Um, I have two answers to this, but one I have given many times, and that is the Pokemon Sun and Moon side quest with the Eevees that you know just kind of tackles the subjects of aging and dying. But since I've gone over that many times, I'm going to say I actually really liked the Terrytown quest in Breath of the Wild. And that was a quest where you build up your own town. And I really enjoy building up towns to begin with in RPGs. I think they're really, really neat just kind of have a little space of your own. And uh, there's kind of a sweet side quest that drives the whole thing with this kind of weird-looking bachelor dude who's a carpenter. And he really, you know, he wants to settle down. And he, so you have to find someone for him who's interested. And there's this Gerudo woman, because in, in Breath of the Wild, the Gerudo actually uh, 
they make it very clear they have husbands that aren't part of their race because their race consists mostly of women. You know, she's kind of looking for someone to settle down with. And so you, you, you match them up and it's not like they, they, they hit it off immediately and fall deeply in love. But they're like, OK, cool. Let's make this work together. I think we can make this work. So you build the town with them and you find like a, a minister for them who's like this old, really old Zora guy. And it's just a very sweet little little quest that lets you build up your own space. Um, the only complaint is that you, you get stuck with the with this really ugly looking um, building that they force on you. You can't choose your style, but otherwise, yeah, I really like it. I think that Western RPGs are a lot better than Japanese RPGs or Eastern RPGs in general because Eastern RPGs I think default too much to fetch quests and very simple quests in general. Uh, that are very much the go and kill the five monsters or get the five things and come back to the person to help them out. Where a game like Fallout New Vegas, I think one of the most classic quests from that game is a quest called Beyond the Beef, where uh, (laughs) there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that you can do in this quest. But the upshot is you discover a freaky society called the White Glove Society. It's very posh, very formal, and they have a taste for human flesh. And they've they've recently given up human flesh, but somebody who's part of the society wants to get them back into it, and he plans to secretly introduce human flesh into a banquet and then reveal it and have everybody go, oh, human flesh, uh, yeah, you know what, we should go back to being cannibals. This is great. And you as a player have many, many different options uh, up to and including feeding your own companions to them. Oh, that is really, really, really dark. It is exceedingly dark and you can do so many different options and they don't necessarily involve killing anybody. It's just finding interesting ways to manipulate the characters and the dialogue choices and it feeds in really perfectly to the way that you build out your character and I mean, if you're like a femme fatale, you can have sex with the char- with characters. Um, you can lure, you can convince different characters to do different things. Uh, you have a lot of different tools at your disposal and in an interesting environment. And that to me is just the perfect example of a really well-designed quest that isn't just all about, oh, do I have the a high enough conversation stat? Okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um... Skyrim would had a lot of like great quests like that, but mm. uh, you uh, they a lot of them were violent. I love the quest to become a werewolf. That was so cool. Oh, the werewolf quest was all. I mean, everybody remembers that quest. Yeah, and the the end result is holy shit! You're a werewolf. You can't lose. I mean, I liked the quest where you're joining the the Assassins Guild. That was and great. And it just basically became what Assassins Creed or something briefly. <laughs> It, was that the one where like a, a kid summons you because his like the woman who owns the orphanage is just like an abusive, terrible woman? So he calls on the the night mother to uh, grant him an assassin to, to get rid of her, and, and he gets you, and is like, okay, well, this is the situation. What are you going to do about it? And yeah, you can kill her. And frankly, the orphanage is a lot better off without her. <laughs> I just remember the really neat image of you are standing over somebody ready to kill them, and then you look up and you see one of the assassins up above watching you and they basically invite you into the assassins guild from there but or you could just kill them uh and do yeah. your own thing if you want <laughs> yeah but, pretty much um bethesda games are good for that 
yeah when they're not completely broken they can be actually pretty interesting and fun role-playing experiences absolutely but a lot of the time they just kind of break <laughs> well everybody loves the idea of bethesda rpgs a lot more than the reality a lot of the times yeah yeah definitely okay william neves says lately i've been thinking about how great of a system the switch is for rpgs we have such a huge library of interesting available games available on it. it's decently powerful and the portability allows me to sink in far more hours however i find that i'm longing for the rpgs that were made on the slightly more limited hardware of the ds and 3ds these games felt more catered toward mobile play and are very different from the now portable console experiences the switch offers while I'm not complaining that we now have console-like experiences, I feel as though an era of ending game gaming has ended. Maybe it's nostalgia speaking, but I have been having more fun with titles such as the SMT games, Etrian Odyssey, past DQ titles, and other seemingly limited experiences. I dearly love both consoles, but I've been favoring my 3DS more and more lately. So yeah, this yeah. is an interesting uh, thought on their part. I don't necessarily agree that the quote-unquote classic 16-bit or mobile experience has gone away. I think even a game like Pokemon, even though it's been at pains to try and expand itself as much as possible, still feels very much like a portable RPG. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it really depends because I see where they're coming from. Like, I'm tr I've tried to play The Witcher on Switch uh, in handheld, and I'm not saying it didn't work. I'm just saying it felt a little bit confined, so I might try again on the PS4. But uh, I also see the value of what they're saying in that games like... Um, SMT and especially Etrian Odyssey, you're not going to get those. I mean, you're going to get those on the Switch eventually, but God knows when and God knows how. And there are definitely a lot of great RPGs on my 3DS that are just kind of stuck in limbo. And I'm like, oh, I'll go finish them someday. And and I'll never finish them, unfortunately, because the Switch also has a lot of great RPGs, but it has a more, to me, it has a more varied experience. Um, I think Mike has written in the past about how a lot of Switch games don't really aren't really engineered for handheld as well as they should be whereas pretty much every 3ds game you play is going to be like okay well this is for handheld so you're not going to have to struggle with anything I mean, one of the switch's most famous rpgs is octopath traveler a game that could have easily have been on the 3ds yeah uh, maybe with like you know lesser effects but yes it definitely could have been on 3ds and I fully expect and a game like bravely default again doesn't seem like it's that different from what came before on the 3DS? No, having played the demo, I'd say that it's suited perfectly fine for the Switch. And and we're also getting games like The World Ends With You getting ported over to the Switch. So I actually think that it's uh, we're getting a lot of what we got on the 3DS and the DS. It's just better balanced. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you used The World Ends With You as an example, but... Uh, that was actually a good example of a Switch uh, game being ported badly over to the Switch because mm. the control scheme is just like, what the hell? And the problem with that, though, is that Square probably could make it work very easily if they just, you know, made some tweaks to the control schemes. But eh, as it is right now, I don't right know now, what very like, easily means in this context, but sure. Yeah, uh, at least something. Something better than, you know, have a stylus or go to hell. <laughs> have a stylus or go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Buy me a stylus or go to hell. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I think that the main thing is we've seemed to have maybe lost the Etrian Odyssey series, and if that's the case, then that's really sad. That would be very, very sad. We had that one tease, like, years ago, and I don't know what the deal is with that. I hope one day we're just really surprised out of nowhere. And if nothing else, we seem to still be getting a steady flow of 16-bit type RPGs, because 
uh, they appear on things like Steam, and then they get end up getting ported to uh, to, to the Switch. I, I think Sea of Stars is a great example. Uh, Mitsuda, we mentioned Mitsuda. He's going to be doing music for it. That is so crazy. Like I saw on Twitter, like it's not like they asked him. He came up to them and said, "Hi, can I make music for your game?" What the hell are you going to say? No. <laughs> Go away, you famous composer from Xenogears and Chrono Trigger, who's one of the best composers ever and is in the running with Nobuo Uematsu as the dean of all Japanese RPG soundtracks. We don't need yeah. your work. No, we're good. We're, we're fine. Thanks. Thanks for offering. That is so great. I am so excited about that. But you're right that even though these games obviously aren't like 16-bit, like one-to-one as they would be in the day, they have, you know, fancier effects and fancier animation. The aesthetic is there. The spirit is there. Um and there's more than enough to go around, especially in the indie scene. So I am. There's always something for me to re, to retreat back to when I'm just kind of fed up with Final Fantasy VII remake shininess. So Nadia, do you remember our discussion about RPG intros? Yes, I do. So Zach, we got a bunch of emails about that. People wanted to chime in with their own favorite RPG intros. Uh, but Zach Hubert wanted to defend the Chrono Trigger intro, which we were a little bit down on. We were like, I mean, it's cool and everything, but at the same, and it moves at a relatively snappy pace, but the old wake up Chrono is a bit of a yeah. cliche. <laughs> it probably started the cliche now that I think about it. Well, no, finally, that's sorry, Dragon Quest 3 did, really. But Zach says, I did want to comment on Chrono Trigger, whose intro you were a bit lukewarm on, possibly because you've been singing its praises for decades ago. There has to be a flaw somewhere, but I have to hand it a good intro when I see it. <clears throat> Chrono Trigger has only a minute of exposition before it gives control to the player, and opens up the world with plenty of options. You can play games at the fair, get into mischief, which will bite you in the butt later in the game, explore yes. the rest of the continent, fight in the forest, or against Gato. There's plenty to do. Most critically, though, you can skip all of this and move the plot along in just another couple minutes if you want to get moving. Not only does this give the player agency, but it also complements the New Game Plus feature, and it's just one more example of exceptional developer foresight. Nadia, what do you think? Um, when we're talking about like Chrono Trigger's intro, we're not saying I don't think there's, we're not saying it's bad. I think it, we're just talking about it in terms of story impact because it's not like oh, bang, here's a mysterious woman walking through the snow with these soldiers, or, or bang, here's this conflicted dark knight going to kill some innocent people over a crystal. It's like Chrono Trigger, Cr sorry, Chrono, he wakes up. Yes, indeed, he he wakes up. He goes to the fair. You can play around if you want, and it's really great how if you act like a jerk, it'll come back and bite you in the butt later on. But um, it doesn't have that instant story hook that the other games have, and that's not necessarily a criticism against it because, of course, Chrono Trigger is just that kind of a game, but I can't deny that it doesn't really get you with that story hook in the first 30 seconds the way other Square games do. I thought that Chrono Trigger was fun to start, uh, fun enough to start, interesting enough to start, but it has a nice little self-contained vignette about rescuing the princess, and then it just keeps getting wilder and wilder from there. But yes. I also kind of felt like it didn't truly like it it went to another level when it got to the magnus's tower like that's that to me was the bit where chrono trigger started to truly become something special that was obvious yeah that was one of the best encounters not just one of the best dungeons but one of the best boss encounters like the atmosphere the music the the fight itself against magus is still fantastic like it takes brains it takes uh skill it takes some luck and it's just a, it's just one of those fights that's absolutely perfect. It just combines everything. And then you, you, you triumph, and there's this big uh, twist at the end where Magus, you think, oh, he's he's the one summoning, he's the one, like, 
who made Lavos. And he's like, no, I'm, I have nothing to do with making Lavos. I'm trying to summon him. And then you can't get anything else out of him because everything goes to hell. So, yeah, you're right about Magus's tower being a really key turning point for that story, becoming uh, a little bit more of uh, something that you really want to follow to the end. Yeah, and I don't know. I can't think of many RPG fights that literally made me laugh out loud. <laughs> with with Ozzy? Yes. Yeah, that tormented me as a kid. I had no idea what I was doing, but then I finally, when it clicked, I, I, I laughed too, and I said, wow, that's actually really clever. Yes. All right, that is the end of our mailbag for the week. If you want to contribute, send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. That's K-A-T dot B-A-I-L-E-Y at usgamer.net. Or send me a DM on Twitter. My DMs are open. Okay, Axel Bloodgod is the US Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. We come out every single Monday. And if you want to contribute... Make sure to follow us on all of the social media channels. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. And thanks to Alex and Steve for coming on the show to talk about Final Fantasy VII Remake's ending. We'll be back next week as usual. But until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay indoors, and happy adventuring.